Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Radical Philosophy is on Facebook now. You can find it by searching Radical Philosophy Radio Show on Facebook and clicking to follow and keep updated with the show. Happy listening. Good afternoon, listeners. Thanks very much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Associate Professor Amy Harbin about disorientation and moral life. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, Could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? I teach philosophy and women and gender studies in Michigan in the United States. I'm from Canada originally. I did all my graduate work in Canada, but I've been here for about six years now. And so the book is representative of a lot of what interests me in philosophy. I'm interested in moral psychology, so thinking about how people become motivated to act, philosophy of emotions, so bioethics, so thinking about healthcare ethics, philosophy of psychiatry, and all of these things from a feminist approach, so a feminist perspective on all these things. Mm, So have you had many publications? Yeah, I have. The book, leading up to the book, I had written a few articles to start thinking about disorientation. After the book came out, I've also sort of developed, I don't know, offshoots of the project in different ways. So one of them has been thinking about applications in healthcare contexts, so thinking about how um, disorientations play out in healthcare settings. For example, thinking about how queer or LGBTQ individuals can be disoriented by healthcare settings or how even their their doctors or nurses can be disoriented. And so I have a couple of papers about that. Another sort of offshoot has been thinking about some literature in clinical psychology about resilience and um, something called post-traumatic growth, which is a whole area which maybe listeners are familiar with in clinical psychology but which I have some criticisms of and I'm sort of concerned about. So I have some, some papers in that area. And then more recently I've been thinking about 
developing accounts of fear and safety. So moving from thinking about disorientation to more questions of how how fear shapes what we do, how we act morally and politically, how a, how a desire for safety can influence what we want to do, decisions we make in our lives, and so on. So I have a couple articles just sort of starting in that area. Mm, it sounds great. So what was it that inspired you to study disorientation and moral life? This is such a nice question. I, I think in thinking about it, I've always really been interested in disorientation. I go back to some of my early textbooks from classes on the existentialists in my first couple years of university, and I can see everything I've highlighted there is all about being disoriented, not knowing how to go on in your life, having sort of serious experiences of traumatic events or experiencing grief or experiencing illness, um, education, and and as a result of these experiences, not really knowing who you are anymore and needing to become a different person than who you were before. Philosophically, I've always been interested in it, but also personally, I think the people that I love most in the world are people that have opened up to me about their their struggles, their difficult times, their experiences of not knowing how to go on. The films and the memoirs and the first-person accounts that I'm most drawn to often are on those themes. And I think the people that I trust most as moral agents, the people that I rely on and I think are mentors for me are people who have also been willing to open up about their experiences of disorientation. So once I started thinking about this as a project, as, as one does, you sort of start to see it everywhere, but I still do think that disorientations are super common, super relatable experiences that most of us um, have gone through at one point or another, and of course not all of us have the liberty to talk about them as openly, but I think that they are sort of fundamental experiences of human life. So could you give us your definition of disorientation? For sure. So the kinds of experiences, as I said, that I'm interested in are things like the loss of a loved one. So, so a, loved per- a loved one dies and you experience grief after that, or you experience a traumatic event or a serious illness or other sort of major identity shifts like a religious conversion or migration to a new country or experiencing racism or coming to recognize racial privilege, um, those kinds of things. So these are all experiences, I think, of there's serious experiences in one's life that can really throw one back and make it not clear how to go on with your life in the same way. So I define disorientations as sustained, difficult experiences that make it hard to go on. And what I mean by that, so sustained experiences, I mean that these are not things that happen in an afternoon and that are over. Occasionally, when I was early on presenting some of this work, people would say to me, oh yeah, I know know what it is to be disoriented. I come out of a subway station in a new city and I don't know where I am and, and I'm disoriented all of a sudden. And I would say, well, that's not quite what I mean because I am not thinking of brief experiences. Rather, I'm thinking of ones that go on for some time, right? These are major life experiences. What it means that they're sustained can be different from case to case. So 
some kinds of disorientations can be very long-term, nearly lifelong. So being disoriented by some kind of oppression, right, that doesn't go away very easily. Versus some other kinds can be still long, but not quite as long. So things like serious illness, right, that might that might be five years of your life, and then it might actually pass. So the time frame sustained can mean different things in different different kinds of disorientations, but I think they're all sustained. I also think they're all difficult in the sense that they add strain to an individual's life, right? It's less easy than it would be without the disorientation. But, of course, different kinds of disorientation are different kinds of difficult. So grief at the loss of one's child, for example, that that kind of devastation, that's very, very difficult as compared to, say, disorientation as a result of being in a feminist classroom and learning about oppression for the first time, which can also be difficult, but not as, it's not comparable, right, to losing a child. And then I think, so I think these are all sustained, they're all difficult, and then I also say that they're all things that make it hard to go on. All of the ones that I discuss in the book are things that don't, that that they stop short of making it impossible to go on. So these are not things that are fatal for us, but but in all cases, they make it, they make a person have to stop. They're not sure what to do with their life plans, right? They're not sure how to identify anymore. There's some kind of major roadblock to just going on in the, in the way that they easily had before. So that's my basic definition. Basically, they're sustained, difficult experiences that make it hard to go on. What features of ordinary human lives are neglected by moral theory? This is also a really good question. I think I, as I said, my approach within ethics and moral psychology is always a feminist approach. And feminist moral philosophers have pointed out many ways, many, many aspects of our lives that have been neglected by moral theory. Especially parts of our lives within the private sphere have largely been and historically been neglected by moral theory. So ethics has tended to focus a great deal on actions in the public sphere, but not focus on things like personal relationships, family dynamics, romantic decisions, sexual relationships, friendship relationships, the things that have historically been seen as in the realm of the personal and have certainly been neglected. Also, in my introduction to ethics classes, I always teach an article by Virginia Held called Feminist Transformations of Moral Theory, where she talks about the aspects of life that have been neglected in moral in the history of moral philosophy. And she talks about the focus on discrete individuals rather than relationships between people. So ethics has tended to focus on you know, what I as an individual should do rather than focusing on how I should be in relationship or how how I should relate. So the focus on the individual has meant that we've neglected a lot in the history of ethics. And also she talks about a focus on rationality rather than the affective and emotional aspects of life. And I certainly agree with that, that there's been a lot of focus on rational decision-making, rational decision theory, not a great deal of focus on the ethics of emotions and affect. So certainly all of that's been neglected by moral theory. I also try and add in the book a focus on how moral theory has tended to neglect many of the dynamics of unintentional or non-deliberate action. 
so I think that a lot of philosophical ethics has focused on evaluating deliberate and decisive actions. This makes sense because lots of our actions are deliberate and decisive. But I think that a lot of our moral lives are also non-deliberate and non-decisive, right? Things that we do without intending to do them. Um, and there's a whole debate in ethics about the dynamics of taking responsibility or being responsible for things that you didn't intend to do. And I wade into that a little bit in the book. But basically, I think a lot of our moral lives are things that we do non-intentionally and non-deliberately. And that's just a fact of what it means to be a moral agent. And so a lot of that has also been neglected by ethics, I think. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking with Associate Professor Amy Harbin about disorientation and moral life. Could you explain about your argument against treating practical disorientation as an abject defect? For sure. So, as I said, you know, I think that we have these experiences, people experience a traumatic event or they experience grief or a serious illness or they come out as queer or they experience feminist education, a number of kinds of experiences. And, uh, you know, you would think, I think, I think it's natural to think that these experiences are likely to be difficult for us and in many cases debilitating, right? So we're not, often we think of these experiences in our own lives and we think, Maybe I wasn't my best self during that time. I didn't make the best decisions. I wasn't there for my friends in the way I am at other times. We don't think of these often as the best moral moments in our lives, right? We don't think that we are the best moral or political agents at these times. And that's natural, and I think it is true that these experiences often debilitate and make it difficult for us to be moral agents in the way we would like to be. So in the history of philosophy, whenever these have tended to come up, and they have, you know, philosophers have have brought up disorientations from Plato through Descartes, through the pragmatists, through the existentialists. These have come up often. When they come up in moral contexts, often philosophers assume and state that these will be dangerous, debilitating experiences. They will not help us as moral agents. And again, I don't think that's wrong. I just think it's not right all the time, right? I think that sometimes these experiences can, in fact, be morally promising and politically promising, and so that we in philosophy need to understand how that is. So basically what I do is look at a variety of kinds of sources, so not only ones from philosophy, as I've mentioned, but also first-person sort of testimony from memoirs and other sources, as well as empirical sources, so social scientific studies of, for example, people in grief or people experiencing serious illness. And I, I glean from these sources a sense of how, in some cases, again, not in all cases, but sometimes these kinds of experiences can actually have positive moral and political effects. And I kind of group those effects into two main categories. One is that they can, in some cases, produce certain kinds of awareness. And the other is that they can, in some cases, produce what I group under calling 
tenderizing effects so they can actually make us be different and act differently in the in the moral world so basically thinking about experiences of racism and white privilege and consciousness raising and feminist education i show how the disorientations following those kinds of experiences in some cases have generated awareness like i said and specifically awareness of oppressive norms so coming to greater awareness of how oppression works and awareness of political complexity so understanding the world is more politically complex than we may have thought and then i suggest that even though these are kinds of awareness that don't immediately tell us how to act they're not they don't point us towards exactly what the right thing to do is they are nonetheless morally and politically promising because they generate different ways of being in the world i suggest they generate epistemic humility and different ways of acting collaboratively which is beneficial in in our certain moral context so that's one kind of thing right these disorientations can prompt awareness the other sort of thing as i said the tenderizing effects here i think about experiences like i've mentioned things like serious illness trauma queerness and migration and i show again using those kinds of sources how these experiences sometimes generate different ways of of being able to live so in in particular i'm thinking of capacities for living unprepared capacities for sensing vulnerabilities living what i say against the grain of norms so coming to not not being able to ha- have to um, embody harmful norms that exist and then again these are not the kinds of different ways of living that tell us what to do and make us choose different ways of acting but they do change our ways of being in the world in ways that are helpful given current dominant and unfortunate tendencies towards valuing independence over interdependence and strength over over vulnerability and so on so that's the basic argument that you know again not in all cases for sure in some cases disorientations can debilitate but we haven't yet recognized in philosophy how they not only debilitate but also have these promising effects sometimes and we also haven't recognized how they can help us even without cultivating what i call moral resolve right so again philosophers tend to focus a lot on deliberate and decisive action one of the major assumptions of the history of ethics so people like Frankfurt and even contemporary moral psychologists like Joshua Green and Jonathan Haidt tend to assume that the best moral agents are the ones who can clearly evaluate our options and decisively act and i try to counter that claim by suggesting that sometimes disorientations are promising not by helping us decisively act but in fact just by shaping who we are differently What is the moral significance of disorientation? So, it's I think that disorientations are significant in at least a couple ways. One is this way that I've described, right, that they can motivate different ways of of being in the world in ways that are sometimes promising. So that's one big sort of way in which they're morally significant. The other is that I think as as i said these are common experiences lots of us can relate to them many of us have been disoriented at certain times of our lives and people respond to us while we are disoriented right that's one that's one big 
way that we relate to each other in the world. We need to respond to each other when we're disoriented. And I think that the ways that we respond to disoriented people, right, if I have a friend who's disoriented, the way that I respond to her is morally significant. I can do that in a better or worse way, morally speaking. So if we think, for example, of a person, a friend, say, who's grieving a partner who's died, they're disoriented, they feel like they don't know how to go on in their life, I could respond to them in a way that suggests that, sure, they can grieve for a while, but eventually they should get over it, they should move on. I shut her down, you know, not be willing to hear about her experience. If it goes on and on, I might even start to think of her as an irresponsible person or unfit for parts of her life, right? I, and if, say, I am in her workplace, I might start to think, oh, she, she shouldn't be in my workplace anymore, she's not a reliable colleague, and so on. So I could respond to her in that way that basically tells her, you are not allowed to be disoriented here, being disoriented is not an okay way to be. What I suggest in the book is that the ways that people respond, right, if we respond in ways that shut, try to shut down disorientations, that can actually make a significant difference to how people experience being disoriented. And I use the work of uh, one of my teachers, philosopher Sue Campbell, who has written about the power of inter- interpreters, right, to shape people's emotional experience. So if if I'm expressing my emotional experience and an interpreter refuses to give me uptake for that, that can make me have the experience differently or, in fact, maybe not have the experience at all. It can, it's that significant. And I think the same thing with disorientations. If people try and shut us down, it can mean that we don't have the experience of disorientation in the same way or maybe don't have the experience at all. And that can be troubling if, especially as I've suggested, disorientations can be morally promising, right? For sure, they are experiences that we all have and they deserve uptake, but they can also have these morally promising effects. And if people try to just shut us down as we're having those experiences, that can be quite troubling. So on the other hand, if I respond to my friend um, in a way that's more hospitable, right, allowing her to experience disorientations, allowing her to express them to me while also remaining as a participant in moral life. You know, as I suggest to her, this is, a, this is a fine thing for you to be experiencing. I'm here for you. You know, we, you're still a part of, you're still a valuable part of our lives. That can actually make it possible for her to experience the beneficial effects of being disoriented. And the same goes for institutions. So I suggest in the book that not only people, but also institutions have a responsibility to respond to those who are disoriented in hospitable ways rather than in ways that try and shut down those experiences. That's the second sort of way in which disorientations are morally significant, right? In one sense, they can change how and who we are as moral agents, and in another sense, we have a responsibility as moral agents to respond well to people who are disoriented. Would examples of that be, say, if, like, like my mother died when she was 74, and I got a couple of terrible responses from friends sort of saying, oh, well, 
life goes on. And I thought, well, yeah. yeah, unfortunately not for my mother. And somebody else saying, oh, well, she had a good innings. I mean, that, that that really is shutting people down, isn't it? So is it, or if somebody said, oh, gee, that's that's really awful and doesn't matter what age your parents are, but it just has such a major effect on you and you feel so alone, would they sort of be examples of, of that? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the kind of thing. I mean, the kind of the kind of insensitive remarks it's astonishing what people will say. I think often, I mean, if we want to see it, give them the benefit of the doubt, often in an effort to try to soothe or comfort, right, people in cases of grief, often people don't know what to say. And so they'll say something like that, like, you know, well, at least you could cherish your good memories or whatever they said to you. And those, I think, are exactly the kind of examples of dismissing your experience that concern me, right? And if if what you're expressing to your friends is a sort of like, I don't know how to go on in this new world, you know, I've never lived in a world without my mother, and now I'm in this world, I what I suggest is that that's, that's an experience that needs space and validation as a legitimate experience. Yes, a very common experience, but a legitimate experience of not knowing how to go on in the world. And in fact, I think if we all sort of saw disorientations as more legitimate and not terrifying, not scary experiences, then we might be better at allowing people the space to express them. But I think often instead what happens is this anxiety about you know, oh, we need to we need to always be confident, we need to always exude optimism, and we need to feel sure of our ways of going on in the world. And so people are made uncomfortable when, when themselves or others don't know how to go on. And I think that, that kind of discomfort is what gets expressed in those unfortunate kinds of remarks. Yeah, and particularly when somebody loses a child because... Any, any parent doesn't expect to lose their child or their child to die before they do. And it's something that you will have, Harry, with you, that grief for the rest of your life. I mean, you may be able to go on and function in many ways, but there'll, there'll always be that black cloud hanging over you, won't there? Yeah, exactly. One of the, one of the books that I talk about in the book about grief is a book that I think many people have read, um, Joan Didion's book called The Year of Magical Thinking, where she talks about grief at the death of her husband, and then at the end of the book, you know, her daughter is also sick and eventually dies. So she has both that, you know, both the grief at the loss, the sudden loss of her partner, and then the completely unexpected loss of her adult daughter. And of course, she's a beautiful writer, so she writes sensitively and sort of vibrantly about this experience of just just how difficult it is to go on in the world, even when grief is expected, even when you have a long time leading up, a, a long sort of illness leading up to the loss of a loved one. That doesn't mean that you're not also going to be shocked and disoriented by their actually being gone. So I think that's one of the things that was really beautiful in writing the book is also led to a lot of crying <laughs> as I was writing the book is that there are a lot of really intelligent and beautiful accounts of these experiences because they 
stick with people. People are compelled to write about them, and they're very relatable. And grief is one of them, for sure. There are a lot of really beautiful accounts of grief. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you so much. It's been really wonderful to be here. And I've been speaking with Associate Professor Amy Harpin about disorientation and moral life. This is part one of a two-part interview. I hope you've enjoyed the program and be sure to tune in next week.